These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Greetings. Good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Coffee with Jeff, a podcast in which I find a subject I would like to know more about and then write it in a hopefully entertaining story. This is episode 221, and on this episode, I'm going to tell you the story of a woman who was in an automobile accident and refused to die. Or maybe she did die and just didn't know it. I'm talking about a movie like no other. A film that has the look and feel of a dark nightmare. It's called Carnival of Souls. Written by John Clifford, directed by Herc Harvey, and starring Candace Hillegross, I'm going to tell you the story of how this remarkable film was made. A 30-year-old director and producer of educational and industrial films was driving home from a vacation in Los Angeles to his home in Lawrence, Kansas. He was driving through Salt Lake City, Utah at sunset when he noticed the abandoned Salt Air Pavilion, a resort on the southern shore of the Great Salt Lake. It was one of the strangest things he had ever seen, so he stopped his car and got out and walked around. He took a few pictures. When he returned home, he showed the pictures to writer John Clifford and said they should make a feature film using the location. The last scene, he told John, had to be a whole bunch of ghouls dancing in that ballroom, but the rest of the story was up to him. The film the two created was called Carnival of Souls, which was released in 62. While the film was pretty much overlooked in its day, it has since become what they call a cult classic. Now, before I get started, I want to say that I'm not going to go over the plot of this film. Carnival of Souls is over 60 years old and is in the public domain. So I assume if you wanted to see it, you already have. The maker of this classic film was named Herc Harvey. He was born Harold Arnold Harvey on June 3, 1924 in Windsor, Colorado, but grew up in Waverly, Illinois, and then back in Fort Collins, Colorado, where he graduated high school. After spending some time in the U.S. Navy during World War II, he came to Lawrence, Kansas in 1945 to study at the University of Kansas. In college, he majored in theater and stage and did a number of theatrical productions. After his time at the University of Kansas, he attended the University of Denver and the University of Colorado to continue his studies, and then began to teach at the university that he had once attended. Russell Moser and Arthur Wolfe also attended the University of Kansas in the 1940s. Both had dreams of becoming filmmakers, and in 1947 produced a short film called Sewing Simple Seams a 10-minute film about using a sewing machine. It was created with almost no money and was purchased by an industrial film company called Young America. 
Soon requests started coming in for more educational and industrial films, so the childhood friends created the Centron Corporation. The name is from the fact that Lawrence, Kansas is in the center of the United States and electronic in honor of the electronic age of the future. Centron began producing films like Why Punctuate, Cooking, Kitchen Safety, Speech, Platform Posture and Appearance, and Other People's Feelings. Fans of Mystery Science Theater 3000 and Rift Tracks will know their films well. The company quickly grew and began hiring script writers, technical crews, and actors from all over the Lawrence, Kansas area. Over the years, they estimated that they had used over 3,000 Lawrence residents as actors. One of these actors was Herc Harvey, and after helping for a while, they asked Herc if he would be interested in directing, and of course he was. His first was a 1955 short called Buying Food. Between 1950 and 1962, Herc would direct at least 39 short films, including Cheating, The Show-Off, What About Drinking, The Gossip, Cindy Goes to a Party, Why Study Science, Make Your Home Safe, and many more. John Clifford also worked for Centron as a writer. John was born in Springfield, Illinois, and grew up in Chicago with relatives after his parents died. It was during the Great Depression that he decided he wanted to be a writer. He began as a joke writer, and for a while he was working in Hollywood as a junior writer for a film studio before being drafted into the Army for World War II. He had thought his time in the Army would be a year or so, but he ended up serving five years. The good news was, John was on the GI Bill, so he was able to go to a Hollywood school for writers. Returning to the Midwest, he began taking various writing jobs before being hired at Centron. John had just published a Western novel called The Shooting of Story James, so when Herc Harvey returned from his West Coast trip, which included a stop at the abandoned Saltaire Pavilion in Salt Lake City, he turned to John to write a screenplay. Herc told John that all he required in a screenplay was that it ends with a bunch of ghouls dancing in a ballroom. Herc wanted a horror film that had the look of an Ingvar Bergman film and the feel of a Jean Cocteau film. He was a big fan of the French poet, playwright, novelist, designer, and filmmaker, especially his films like Blood of the Poet and Beauty and the Beast. Having always wanted to write films, John began to write on his own time. Three weeks later, John had a script. He said of his script, I decided early on to give our heroine no real sympathy or understanding from any other characters. There is no catharsis, except when the viewer creates one for himself. He was very conscious of the small budget that they would be working with, so he wrote with that in mind. Because it's expensive to shoot sound on the street, he wrote as little dialogue as possible, and he avoided any special effects due to the cost involved. As he wrote, he thought of the Rutger Organ Company that was in Lawrence. They had a huge room where they tested their organs. So he used that, and the main character became an organist. Candice Hillegas was an actress from Huron, South Dakota. She was born on August 14, 1935. As she grew up, she often performed in school plays. She studied acting at Huron College and the University of Iowa. Eventually, she began appearing on stage and doing modeling work. 
at the time of Carnival of Souls, Candace was working as a New York actress on the stage. Harvey told Sidney Berger, the man who would play the creepy John Linden in the film and who helped cast the film, We've got to find a lead for the show in a hurry. Can you find a good actress from New York? Linden was going to New York on a vacation anyway, so while there he called Monty Silver. He was his friend and also the agent to Hillegross. She auditioned in his office, which was on the west side of Manhattan. At the time, she was also being offered a role in Del Tenney's Psychomania, but took the Carnival of Souls role because Psychomania required nudity, while Carnival did not. When Harvey picked Hillegas up at the airport, his immediate impression was she wasn't right for the role. She looked very dowdy, he said, very hippie and that sort of thing. And I asked myself, how am I going to tell her tomorrow that we can't use her? But then, to his surprise, the next morning she walked in looking exactly like what he thought the main character, Mary Henry, should look like. According to Candace, she was paid $2,000. According to Herc, she got $2,500 for her three weeks of work. Candace Hillegas was probably the only one who made money off the film, but we'll get more into that a bit later. At the time, Candace said $2,000 seemed like a fortune, and she was in the the take-the-money-and-run type mode. Speaking of money, financing the film seemed to go fairly easy. A businessman in Lawrence named Joe Tryler told Herc that if he ever made a feature film, he would be interested in investing. Herc told him on a Friday night that he was going to make a film, and by Monday, Joe had raised $17,000. Herc figured he could defer $13,000, so he started with a budget of about $30,000. A very small amount to make a feature film. Fortunately, most of the people working on the film agreed to a percentage of the profits. And, well, as things turned out, they basically worked for free. The crew consisted of about five or six people. There was Herc, a sound man, a cameraman, an assistant cameraman, an assistant director, and a gaffer or two. Both Hillegas and Harvey said they got along good together. Herc said Hillegas was eager to do the best she could, but one of the main problems was, because she was a method actress, she constantly wanted to know her motivation. One day, when she just had to walk across a busy street at noontime, she asked Herc what was her motivation. Herc turned to her and said, Your motivation right now is to walk across the street without getting killed. One of Kansas's big problems came when they got to filming the end. Now this is a spoiler. The end of the movie, they find her dead in the car with two other girls in the Caw River. It was shot on a cold September day. The other two girls climbed into the car, which was mostly submerged in the river. They were shaking and shivering. When Kansas put her foot in the water, she cried, I'm not going to do it. Herc begged her, so she tried again, putting her foot a little farther in the water, and then she said, It's too cold. There's no way I can do that. Herc said, You've got to do it, or we've got no end for the movie. Finally, Herc, and possibly another crew member or two, grabbed her and threw her into the water, into the car. She was screaming all the way. At the time, a highway patrolman just happened to be coming along and went down to find out what was going on. 
one can only imagine what he thought when he saw a couple of men dragging a screaming woman into the chilly river. They explained they were making a movie, and the cop thought it was best to stick around and make sure things were okay. And even though she's supposed to be dead, if you watch the film closely, you can see Candace's bottom lip trembling. All in all, she seemed to enjoy making the film and the people involved. They were very considerate, very sweet, she said. Like innocence, there was a Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland attitude of let's put on a show. There was a bit of a disagreement of how Candace should play her role. She wanted to play the character more sympathetically, but Herc told her, I don't want people to really care too much about your character because she's going to come to a bad end. Candace replied, but if they don't identify with her in some way, they won't sit for a whole movie. If they don't care, you'll lose your audience. There was another stunt when a car almost hit Candace in an alley. It was a section of the film when her character, Mary Henry, can't be seen by anyone. I remember when the guys at Rift Tracks were watching it, they seemed shocked and commented that it was the most dangerous stunt in the film. I mean, the car comes really close to hitting her. Herc did what he always did. He just found a man on the street driving a bus and asked him for $25 if he would drive down the alley and almost hit her. They filmed it once, and Herc thought it wasn't close enough. He told Candace, This time, kind of let it hit you. The second take comes really close, and Herc said, Oh, that was wonderful. Check it out in the film. It's actually pretty scary. But that's the way Herc operated. For the most part, it was a real guerrilla filmmaking operation. Like one day, Herc walked into an apartment store and said to the saleswoman, Listen, for $25, would you keep people out of the dressing room area? We'd like to shoot some footage of this woman changing her clothes. The woman said, of course, not a problem. After they filmed it, Herc went up to a customer at the store and said, Look, for $10, would you look away while this girl tries to speak to you? And that ends part one of our story. We'll be back with part two in just a moment. Good luck, Mary. Stop by and see us the next time you're in. Thank you, but I'm never coming back. I don't know about that girl. How do you mean? Day before yesterday, she was the only one of three girls to survive an accident. I think she feel a little something. Maybe in her place, I'd do the same thing. Just pick up life again. But I still say she's behaving strange. I have no desire for the close company of other people. My dear. You cannot live in isolation from the human race. Who's the man in the hall? Maybe you heard the boards pop or something. I didn't hear him, Mrs. Thomas. I saw him. There's nobody there. He's been following me. That's all there is to it. That old pavilion out by the lake. Somehow you associate it with all this, don't you? There was someone else there. That strange man was there. Hysteria won't solve anything. Now control yourself. You think I imagined all of it, don't you? You think I'm insane? I didn't say that. I don't mean that. That's just what I need. Get mixed up with some girls off a rocker. I don't want to be left alone. Well, if she's got a problem, it'll go right along with her. 
And now part two of The Making of Carnival of Souls. One of Herc's biggest fears was the opening when the car and the three girls goes off the bridge. The bridge connects two counties, Douglas and Jefferson, and he had to get both their permissions to do the stunt. They gave him the okay with two stipulations. He had to get the car out of the river when it's done and had to pay for damages to the bridge. This scared Herc quite a bit. I mean, if they were dragging the car out of the river and the gas tank tore off, or if something bad happens while the car is being driven off the side of the bridge and causes major damage, it could really eat into their budget. He bought two old cars and had them painted the same color to look like the one the girls were driving in. He had two in case the first take didn't go right. So with mannequins to double for the girls, the car broke through the bridge's wooden railings and tumbled into the river. They got it on the first try, and the car was pulled out of the river fairly easy. When they were leaving, Herc saw a couple of men fixing the bridge. He began to worry about how much the repair bill would be. When the bill arrived, it was for $12. Of course, the climax of the film was at the Saltar Pavilion in of course, the climax of the film was at the Saltair Pavilion, the place that inspired the film. The Chamber of Commerce, who Herc contacted for permission, asked, It's so ruined, so filled with torn decorations. Would you like us to send a crew to clean it up? Herc said, No, 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 we love it just how it is. And then the Chamber of Commerce sheepishly said, If we charged you $50, would you be insulted? I can only imagine that Herc was delighted to pay $50 to have the use of this huge set for a week. Quite the bargain. Now inside the large ballroom, they found they didn't have enough lights to light it up. So they found a local electrician who was able to provide power to the original lights, which amazingly still worked. And that was just enough for what they needed. Now the place hadn't been lit up in years, so people around the lake began calling the police, wondering what was going on. Soon the police, who didn't know what was going on either, showed up asking questions. Now Herc Harvey played the part of the ghoul, the mysterious white face that pops up again and again in the film. We first see him while Mary's driving. He appears in the car window, a special effect that I heard was done with mirrors. Then he shows up throughout the film. He said he played the part as a way to save money, and he said, The fact that there were no lines, I didn't have to memorize anything. Now there is a missing scene from the film. General Labs in California, who did the processing, lost or damaged a roll of film. It was shots of the ghouls coming out of the Salt Lake. They were coming out from behind pilings and such, cold white hands grasping the railings and and black silhouettes walking towards the pavilion. They descend on the building at the end before the dance macabre. It's not necessary for the plot, but it would have added a bit to its creepiness. Now, during the editing phase, Herc began to think that maybe this film was a little too weird, too dreamlike. The music for the film was done in one day by a fellow named Gene Moore, he was in charge of the music at the Calvin Company in Kansas City, and he scored the film. Herc gave him a 16mm print to work with. When he was ready, they went to an organ sales company, and Gene sat down and began to play. 
In six hours, the whole soundtrack was done. Herc said of his experiences making the film, it was an exercise in weirdness. The film premiered at the Granada Theater in Lawrence, Kansas in September 1962, and the reaction was mixed. We had a big premiere in a full house, Herc said. The Granada Theater brought out the searchlights and that sort of thing, and we really did it up. The audience was nice, but they didn't know how to react to the film. John Clifford, the writer, said, I don't think they got it. I mean, we're talking about 1962, and as I told Herc, if we made a recognizable, classy Hollywood-type movie, a straight plot, one where they recognized everything, I think they would have appreciated it a lot more. They would have thought, boy, these guys can make a movie. But no one gives local people credit for doing something that original. At the time, people weren't that sophisticated about it. Kated about it. Herc ended up making a deal with a company called Hertz Lion, a newly formed film distribution company. They were looking for a product. Herc had already tried to sell it to places like United Artists, but had no success. Hertz Lion was interested as they had just bought The Devil's Messenger with Lon Chaney Jr. and were looking for a second film for a double feature. They didn't offer any money up front, but a percentage of the profits. Hertz Lyon edited the film, making it shorter by about nine minutes to fit in better with the double feature. Herc began to get reports of how well the film was doing in the Southwest at drive-in theaters, and he knew he had a lot of money coming, money to pay back all his investors. But as time went on, no money came. He called them one day and said that if he doesn't see some money soon, he's going to come there to get it. Finally, a check came and it bounced. Herc said he knew he was in trouble. Ken Hertz, the president of Hertz Lion, ended up taking off to Europe with all the money. Herc and his investors lost everything. Herc Harvey had plans to make more features, but after losing the money of all his investors, friends of his, he never tried again. To his death in 1996, he still felt bad about losing the money. He said, I want you to know that all the people who put money into Carnival of Souls were very understanding. I was never hassled by anyone, not a soul, and I think that's fantastic. No one told me they were sorry they did it, and I think everyone kind of got a kick out of having their shot at making a movie. But I never would have had the guts to go back to any of them saying, We're going to try it again. You want to put up some more? And he said that if he would have just had the film play around Kansas City, the film would have made its money back. After all that, he went back to work at Centron Films, where he worked until he retired. One of the films was the classic cautionary workplace training film called Shake Hands with Danger. If you've never seen this film, you should look it up. It's quite a trip. Kansas said the film caused her to lose her agent. After Monty Silver saw the film, he said, You know, you're just too weird. You're just so weird. I can't represent you anymore. She tried her best to explain that it was the character, not her, that was weird, but he was so upset, he just got up and walked out, and the two never talked again. When asked about what the original release of the film had done for her career, she said, It didn't have any effect. There was no publicity, no PR, no agency pushing it. It was just out there on its own little legs. 
It should have done something for Herc Harvey, but it just went to the strange oblivion thanks to Hertz Lion, the distributor who buried it, who played it at little drive-ins and so forth. So Herc Harvey's little film went pretty much unnoticed and disappeared like so many low-budget B-films. It would, however, make it on television once in a while, usually edited for local television stations' needs. A couple of people who did see the film were George Romero and David Lynch. Carnival of Souls was definitely an influence on Night of the Living Dead, and some say its nightmare vision was a big influence on David Lynch's style. In the late 80s, something strange began to happen. People began to discover the film, and suddenly, after over 25 years after it was created, it began taking its place as a cult classic. The film was reviewed by such people as Leonard Maltin and Roger Ebert. Herc Harvey, John Clifford, and Candace Hillegas found themselves attending horror fan conventions. Herc, who had the foresight in keeping all his negatives in perfect condition, put together a complete print, a full, unedited version. In 1989, there was a Carnival of Souls reunion in Lawrence, Kansas. At that get-together... Candace Hillegas asked Harvey, wouldn't you love to do a sequel? He responded, if the first one had made money, I might be interested. But Candace said she wanted to pursue it, and Herc said, if you want the headache, you pursue it. So she wrote a treatment and then a screenplay, and it seemed like many people she talked to were interested. Unfortunately, she got involved with a man named Peter Sobey Jr., who said he wanted to help get it made. But then Peter ended up going behind her back and making a remake without Candace's involvement. Candace is still bitter about it to this day, but that's a story for another day. The Saltaire Amusement Park that appeared in the film burned down in 1967. It was rebuilt on a smaller scale in the 80s, and soon after, the Great Salt Lake rose and it flooded. In 1993, the building was remodeled and was mainly used as a small venue for musical acts. Herc Harvey died on April 3, 1996 after a long battle with cancer. The good news was he lived long enough to see his work become appreciated by the film-going public. A little bit before I go, I thought I'd talk a little bit about what I thought of the film. Now, I've always enjoyed watching it, but there are a few things that did bug me. The first is there's only so much one person can watch of Mary Henry, the main character, looking scared and panicked. She spends so much of the film with that, oh my God, look on her face. We never really get to know the character. From what Herc Harvey said, she was a woman who never lived, so she refused to die. That wasn't really apparent. Maybe a scene before she dies to show her sheltered life or whatever. A little bit maybe to know about her character. And then there's Sidney Berger who plays John Linden in the film. He's Mary's neighbor who likes to put whiskey in his coffee. The character is just so damn unlikable. I never know quite what to make of him. His scenes to me are just so uncomfortable. I thought, you know, maybe a little more should be done with that character, but... I don't get it. But it is a beautiful film. Herc did a fantastic job of creating a nightmare. I mean, it just looks great. He definitely had the eye of a filmmaker, and it's a shame that he didn't do more films. 
Now I want to point out there's a colorized version available. Now I'm not totally against colorization, but in this case I'm totally against it. The film was made with black and white in mind, and it needs to be seen that way. The lights and shadows that Herc and his cinematographer Maurice Panther worked on so hard to get the film's wonderfully bizarre look and feel is lost when it's shown in color. I saw the colorized version on Rift Tracks and it just didn't seem very good. I don't think the colors look all that great. Some of the choices just seem very odd. All that being said, I admire the filmmakers for going on and trying to do something different. The fact that the film came out in 1962, six years before Night of the Living Dead, is amazing. And they were smart enough not to try to reach beyond their capabilities, something that many low-budget filmmakers fail at completely. So all in all, I recommend Carnival of Souls. But now, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. I thank you for listening. You know, this show takes money to produce, and if you could help me out, if you could afford a few shekels, just go to my website, that's coffeewithjeff.com, and look for the Patreon link at the top. Click on that, and you can help donate. And if you could, why don't you just tell your friends about it? You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And there's a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. Your story ideas are always welcome, and you can leave them at any of those places. Links to all the sources that I use to write today's story are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. Again, you can find a link at the Coffee with Jeff website. I want to thank my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that reposted on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, remain healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks with something that'll blow your mind. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee 
Coffee with 